Good. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray. Father, there is so much um, within this passage um, that we should be thankful for. Um, it's just such a reminder of your grace. It's such a reminder of your constant love for us um, in seeking to provide us with, um, with your word um, that prepares us or that enables us to live um, in the world you've called us to live in. And so, Father, as we discover in this passage um, some of the possible threats um, to our spiritual progress, may you give us eyes to see, may you give us ears to hear, may you give us a willing heart um, to apply all that you've, you are about to show us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Over the course of the last few years, the health food industry continues to soar as consumer demand spikes. Organic, all natural, no added sugar, no artificial ingredients are the buzzwords these days, as well as gluten-free, vegan, soy, raw, organic buzzwords. Our culture's move towards healthy foods is partly a, re a reaction to the following list. High fructose corn syrup, artificial flavors, MSG, artificial colors, artificial sweeteners, and preservatives. What you just heard me list was a formidable list of seven of the most dangerous ingredients in processed food. Studies show that these ingredients are so bad for you that common, the common chemicals used to flavor 
them and to mate them may be linked to cancer, behavioral problems, reproductive damage, and more. We're often warned to avoid them by dietitians, doctors, health magazines, because these ingredients are a threat to our health. They are, okay? In our passage for this morning, we're made aware of another threat to our lives, just as these ingredients are a threat to our physical health, all right, what we're about to discover is that there are several influences that are a danger, a threat to our spiritual progress as believers. The first threat to our spiritual progress is legalism. Look at verse, look at verse 16 again. It says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Here, Paul begins this new thought with the word, therefore. This word is significant because it is a connective word. Thus, it connects this new thought with the previous thought. Previously, in this letter, and we discovered this two weeks ago, Paul has been reminding the Colossians that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is enough. His crucifixion and subsequent exit from the grave has supplied us, believers, with everything we need in this life and in the life to come. Jesus Christ and all that he's, he achieved has provided us with life now, and life in eternity. And it, is this, and it is with this in mind that Paul begins, verse 16, instructing them not to let no one pass judgment on them. Right? The disciples of Jesus in Colossae faced the danger of spiritual intimidation. And the danger levied against them was from false teachers who went out and about declaring that their faith in Jesus was not enough and that they needed something more, okay? So one commentator points out that whoever these individuals were, they were having a serious unsettling effect on the Colossians. And the kind of judgment that was having this unsettling effect on the Colossians was the kind that was harsh and condemning. Philip Jensen, who's a Bible teacher from Australia, says this. He says, these teachers, this is what they were doing, they stood in judgment over other members of the Colossian church seeking to disqualify or condemn anyone who didn't follow their teachings. So here, this is what's happening. Paul is saying to them, because of all that Jesus has just achieved for you, do not let anyone condemn you or treat you unfairly, right? And make you feel like a second-class citizen in God's family. Do not let anyone pass judgment on you and make you feel guilty, right? Why are they making them feel guilty? It tells us um, um, in verse 16, it's because of food and drink and festivals uh, or a new moon or a Sabbath, now, if you're familiar with your Bible, especially the Old Testament, you will know that there were laws that God established in the Old Testament for Israel. Some of them were dietary laws, and others 
had to do with special days of the Jewish calendar. God established a unique diet for the Jewish community. He told them to enjoy certain food, which he labeled um, as clean, and he told them to stay well away from other foods, which he labeled as unclean. God was not only specific about what foods they could eat, but the, the specificity went deeper. He also told them how to prepare these, these foods, and he also told them what foods can and cannot be eaten together. They were allowed to eat beef and lamb and chicken, but they were forbidden to eat anything from a pig, right? And so the Jewish community were not allowed any bacon, okay? No ribs, right? Nothing like that, right? Or even lobster, nothing like that. And they were also required not to mix meat and milk together. And so what this means in our modern culture is that cheeseburgers, right, are out of the question. You can't have cheeseburgers. And so for many years, the Jewish community had been faithful in upholding these laws and passing them down from one generation to the other. And so in the city of Colossae, it was a cultural norm for Jews to live by these dietary restrictions. Also, festivals, new moons, and Sabbaths, here in this verse is a fairly typical list of Jewish days dedicated to God. Um, and this is what um, Tom Wright has to say about this. He says that, um, he goes on to say that these sacred days refer in descending order to the great annual festivals, all right, the monthly celebrations and the weekly Sabbaths. So, at the time Paul is writing this letter, it was common practice for Jewish Christians to observe special days and seasons. For example, many Jewish believers um, who were members of the church in Colossae at the time still observed the Sabbath. But, unlike their Jewish counterparts, non-Jewish believers, also known as Gentiles, didn't observe these sacred days, okay? They didn't. And because of this, Jewish believers went around making um, non-Jewish followers of Jesus feel bad. They would lay guilt trips on them by saying things to the effect of, hey, if you were a true and genuine Christian, you wouldn't be eating that food. Or, if you were a faithful and committed follower of Jesus, you would observe the Sabbath. This and many more minor issues were the issues being used by certain individuals to condemn many of the disciples of Jesus in the city of Colossae at the time. David Garland, um, who is a New Testament scholar, says this. These opponents have apparently arrogated to, the, to themselves the role of determining who belongs to God's chosen people and who does not. They use the keeping of food laws and sacred days as part of their criteria for deciding this issue. And so, Paul not only exhorts the Colossians to not feel condemned, but this is what he goes on to do. He goes on to remind them that these religious rituals um, are but mere shadows. 
Okay, look at verse 17. He, he describes them as a shadow of um, the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Imagine every time um, I had some sort of conversation with you, what I would do is not make eye contact with you, but I would look at your shadow, right, and start talking to your shadow. Just imagine that. It also, imagine, right, if I met you for the first time after a long time and I started interacting with you, the first thing I would do is try and shake the hand of your shadow, right, and not your hand. Also, I love giving hugs when I see people. I do. Imagine I see you and rather than giving you a hug, I would try and hug your shadow. This is weird, okay? And it's inappropriate, okay? But this is what was kind of happening within the Christian community in Colossae. Mike Leake says, There were many things in the Old Testament that were shadows of Jesus. They were things that were pointing to Jesus. They looked like Jesus, and they helped people sort of know what Jesus would be like but they weren't Jesus. What he's talking about is that in the Old Testament, there are a lot of laws and there are a lot of religious rituals that were pointing to Christ that was about Jesus, okay? But they weren't Jesus. They were shadows. Pastor and scholar David Guzik adds, it isn't that those laws were bad. They were simply a shadow of things to come and once the substance, Jesus Christ, has come, we don't need the shadow anymore. So what Paul is saying, this is what he's saying to them. It's absolutely fine for you to practice these things. But what I have a problem with is when you make these shadows, okay, a necessity for salvation, they are just shadows. They are just religious rituals. They don't have any substance. In fact, they are road signs or symbolic of Jesus himself. David Guzik again comments, Christians are therefore free to keep a kosher diet or to observe the Sabbath if they please. There is nothing wrong with those things. However, they cannot think that eating kosher or Sabbath observance makes them any closer to God and they cannot judge another brother or sister who does not observe such laws. And so the aim of verses 16 and 17 is to cause us to see this. It's to cause us to see that legalism is a real and potentially harmful threat to all followers of Jesus. Unlike the Colossians, we may not have individuals in our church who are going around judging um, and passing judgment on others for not eating the right foods or observing certain religious rituals. We don't have that, okay? We don't have people in our church going around and saying, you guys can't eat pork and you guys can't eat. We don't have that, okay? But as believers, we're all in danger or falling prey to legalism, we're all prone to believe the lie that repentance of sin and faith in Christ for salvation is not enough. 
the steady drip of this attitude can affect us all. We can begin to think that there is more to our Christianity than trust and confidence in Christ. We can allow our inner legalist to influence the way we live by demanding that there is a next step or an alternative step or a series of rules and practices to be followed in order to appease God. In short, legalism causes us to believe the lie that our salvation is earned and kept by following God's commands through a list of do's and don'ts. So here's the question I want you guys to reflect on. How are you trying to earn and maintain God's love outside of the finished work of Jesus? I know for us in the 21st century, um, it's not through dietary restrictions or Jewish religious rituals, but maybe for us, in our day and age and in the culture we live in, um, we might be trying to seek God's love um, through daily Bible reading, for example. Or we might be trying to seek God's love through executing scheduled times of prayer. Or we might be trying to seek God's love through serving in the church or remaining within the confines of sexual purity. All those things are amazing. There's nothing wrong with them, but there is a lot wrong with them when we are trying to gain God's love through those religious activities. they become potentially detrimental to your spiritual progress if they exist in your life to earn God's grace. These practices, everything we do, should be an overflow of God's love for us. We don't do them to gain God's love. We don't. We do them and we practice them and we um, engage in these spiritual disciplines because of God's love which has been expressed to us and given to us in Jesus Christ. That should be the motivation. The second threat to our spiritual progress we discover in our passage for this morning is um, known as mysticism. Um, look at verses 18 and 19 again. It says, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Not long after I was saved um, um, and because I was new to the faith, I wasn't aware of what a, a healthy church was. I was young. I think I was about 18. And I lived in South London at the time. And, um, you know, before that, I thought I was, like, you know, awesome. And I went around London thinking, like, I was the best thing on earth and doing all sorts of stuff. And by God's grace, he saved me. Um, and I joined the nearest church I could find. And it was a small church in my neighborhood. 
Um, and so I, I started attending. And looking back now, there, was a, there were a lot of great things about the church I attended. They helped me understand the fatherly nature of God. They taught me to pray. This was a praying church. They prayed a lot. And they taught me not just how to pray, but the power of prayer and the need for prayer, not just for results and answers, but the need um, for prayer in a believer's life for intimacy with God. Um, they also modeled how to love and care for fellow believers. They were generous with their time. They were generous. They were an amazing church. And so looking back, there were a lot of good things about the church I was part of. But also looking back, there were several things that were concerning about this church. And one of them was that they placed an unhealthy amount of importance on a special spiritual experience or feeling, okay? Rather than on true biblical faith that rests on Christ, okay? So what they were emphasizing was an experience rather than a person. This emphasis is commonly known as mysticism, now, before we explore mysticism some more, um, let me make it clear that there is a version of mysticism within Christianity that is helpful. It's commonly known as Christian mysticism, and it refers to the experiential aspect of our relationship with God, which is legitimate and important. Okay? One of the, the blogs I you know, read, he, they wrote this. They said, Christianity is a religion that touches all of life and the human experience, including emotions and the experiential, okay? And so what I'm talking about is that I'm not discounting experience within Christianity. The mysticism that where um, Paul warns the followers of Jesus in Colossae against is deceptive. And it's deceptive because it doesn't originate from Jesus Christ. And as one commentator said, it is a version of mysticism that seeks dramatic experiences as a key to spiritual maturity. Did you guys hear that? Right? And it's this mysticism that seeks dramatic experiences as a key to spiritual maturity. And so, within the church in Colossae at the time, there arose several individuals and what they went around doing was disqualifying everyone else. That is, they assumed the role of spiritual referees and they viewed members of the church as second-class citizens because they were not recipients of a deeper and higher spiritual experience like them. And another thing that was extremely worrying about them is that they claimed to have, ex to have received these experiences through asceticism and worship of angels, right? We see that in verse 18. They not only went around flaunting their bogus humility and experiences with angels, it's also revealed to us in verse 18 that they were going on in detail about visions, Right? They arrogantly claimed to have the inside track on God. 
And because of all these spiritual revelations and visions, we also find out that they were puffed up without reason by their sensual minds. In other words, what that means is that because of all their quasi-mystical spiritual experiences, their sinful minds made them very proud, right? Because they went around flaunting, telling everybody that we've had these incredible, deep, and dynamic spiritual experiences through the worship of angels and through asceticism, which I'm going to define later, so wait for that if you don't know what that is. But that was what they were doing. And what does that look like? Does that look like someone who wants to glorify Jesus? No. It looks like someone who wants to glorify themselves. And the moment we begin to glorify ourselves, what is that? That is pride. It's pride. So the question is, how did they end up this way? How did they end up, um, um, what caused these individuals in the church to reduce the gospel to dynamic experiences with God? Verse 19 lets us know. Look at verse 19. It says, they have lost connection with Jesus Christ from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its joints and ligaments, grows as God causes it to grow. Right? Just as a plant can only grow in rich soil, true spiritual growth for the believer is made possible from our union with Christ. Growth and fullness is found in Jesus, not a dynamic emotional experience. So, why is mysticism okay, a threat to our spiritual maturity as believers? Let me illustrate with this story found in the book, How People Change, by Timothy Lane. Christine goes from emotional experience to emotional experience. She is constantly hunting for a spiritual high, a dynamic encounter with God. Because of this, she never stays with one church very long. She is more a consumer of experience than a committed member of the body of Christ. Yet, in between the dynamic experiences, Christine's faith often falls flat. She struggles with discouragement and often finds herself wondering if she is even a believer. Despite the excitement of powerful moments, Christine isn't growing in faith and character. Does that, found, that, does that sound familiar? Because Christine's story is symbolic of so many believers. It is a warning, okay, for us to realize that we're all prone to pursue experience rather than pursue Jesus Christ. Mysticism is a threat to you and it's a threat to me. It has the potential to slowly gain prominence and influence in our lives because it only focuses on part of what the Christian life is all about. And when it does, it can rob us of our primary focus on Christ and weaken and impoverish our spiritual progress. So, if you're here and you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, be on the lookout 
for the influence of mysticism in your Christianity? Are you seeking an experience above Jesus? If Jesus is enough, and if we pursue Jesus, this is what's going to happen. The experiences will follow after that. Let's not allow anyone to deem us unworthy of God's grace and mercy because we've not had dynamic emotional experiences. Okay? In our lifetime as a church, we may have some individuals be part of our church who have had incredible spiritual experiences. And as a result of that, some, some of them will be awesome and they will be a gift to us. But others will go around flaunting their experiences and telling us all about it. And they will make us feel that without the experiences they've had, without a similar dynamic um, emotional experience, they will make us feel that we are second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Let no one ever deem us unworthy because of that. As far, as long as you're saved, as long as you're a Christian, as long as you are a recipient of God's love and grace in Jesus Christ, you are loved by him unconditionally, and you have everything you need. You're not a second-class citizen. And so dwell on that, reflect on that, think through that, and know that as you do, the experiences will follow suit. The last threat to our spiritual progress we see in our passage is asceticism. If you've been waiting for this definition, I know some of you have, but some of you know what it is. Asceticism is when a person lives a life of extreme self-denial for a heightened spiritual life. Asceticism was popular during the Middle Ages. It involved practices such as sleeping um, on hard beds, whipping oneself, not speaking for days or sometimes years, and going without food or sleep and so forth. In verses 20 to 23, Paul highlights the futility of asceticism. He begins by saying in verse 20, if Christ if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And the word if at the beginning of this sentence is better translated as because or since. Here, Paul is not calling into question all right, the authenticity of their faith, but emphasizing the certainty of their faith. In other words, Paul is saying since or because you have died with Christ, okay, and he set you free from the spiritual powers of this world, why do you keep on following the rules of this world? That's what he's saying to them. Christ has set you free. You've been saved. Why then are you being consumed with rules and regulations? And so what, what are the rules of this world? Verse 21 um, provides us with a description. They were ascetic in that they involved abstinence. That is why you can see in verse 21, it's got do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 
um, verse 22 helps us further see that it, there is no value in asceticism because it has to do with things that perish and things that are based on merely human commands and teachings. And lastly, verse 23 is a summary of Paul's critique of these religious practices we've been looking at. And in this summary, he lets us know about their deceptive nature, specifically um, the fact that these religious practices promise much um, but under-deliver, okay? Because, he tells us, they have uh, an appearance of wisdom, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, these religious practices, um, that is, have an appearance of wisdom. They look amazing. They're very impressive. But sadly, victims soon realize that they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Essentially, this is what is being communicated to us this morning. That laws, religious or otherwise, can never in themselves make us better people. Let me say that again. Laws, religious or otherwise, can never in themselves make us better people. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism may look outwardly impressive but they cannot fix the real problem of sin in our lives. That is why the whole idea of monks right, leaving the real world and going and living or isolating themselves um, never, re never helps them. They're possibly, I think, one of the reasons why monks do what they do is that they want to get out so they don't sin or they don't do any evil things. But they'll soon realize that that doesn't work. And this is what this is reminding us of. So then, the question is, what will fix um, the real problem of sin in our life? Robert Kurd, in his commentary on the letters of Paul, explains it this way, and he does a fantastic job with this. He says, Christianity offers a more radical and effective solution to man's ethical and spiritual problems than legalism. It allows the old human nature with its unruly passions and bad conscience to die nailed to the cross of Christ so that it may be raised with him to a new life. What does that mean? It means that rules and regulations and legalism, right, which is trying to gain God's love, which is trying to do things. It means that mysticism, seeking experience after experience after experience, and asceticism, which is self-denial, self-denial, self-denial. And there are some good things in those things, but they can never, ever deliver us from our sinful um, um, nature. They can never do that. So then to conclude, all of these spiritual practices, um, legalism, mysticism, and asceticism relies on human attainment. But true followers of Jesus rely on Jesus' atonement. Because Jesus is our only hope. There are threats to your spiritual growth and maturity. But as believers, 
we have all we need in Christ to resist these dangers. When you are rooted and grounded in Jesus, you are no longer required to try and gain God's love through good works, but you worship Christ, you walk with Christ in community, you work for Christ in serving him in the church because of what Jesus has gained for you. Holding fast to Jesus and fixing your eyes on Jesus will enable us to pursue Christ over dynamic experiences. We will be convinced that the healthy emotional experiences will follow as we pursue Jesus. And because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we'll recognize that intimacy with God is not based on our own self-denial, okay, but on Jesus' selfless sacrifice on our behalf. And so the point of all of this is, it's all about Jesus. As a church, we should never get bored of the gospel, we have the potential to. We're prone to wander away from the gospel. You know, we're studying we're studying the book, the letter of you know, the book of Colossians, and over and over again, every Sunday is Christ is enough, Christ is sufficient, Christ is all we need. And this morning, we've been reminded of the fact that rules and regulations will not provide the satisfaction that we're looking for. Only Jesus Christ will. And I could stand here and give you steps as to how to know Jesus more and everything like that, but uh, the, 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 the spiritual disciplines have been provided for us, right? It's simple. I think Christianity is so simple, right? In that we, we think about it and we think it's simple, but it just seems redundant. And, you know, we're supposed to come to church and we're supposed to read our Bibles and we're supposed to pray and we're supposed to, we're supposed to, we're supposed to. But I think we need to cherish and realize that we don't have to read our Bibles. We don't have to pray. We get to. Why? Because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. He's done so much for us, and Jesus is amazing. He really is. And the best thing and the most important thing we can do is continue to fix our eyes on Jesus, to continue to reflect on Jesus. Even if we don't have gooey, amazing feelings as we do it, we just need to reflect on and meditate on who Jesus is. And that is what we do on Sundays. That is why we sing the songs we sing. Okay? These songs are all exalting Christ. Right? That's why Colossians is so awesome. Jesus is enough. We are complete in Christ. In Him, we have been made alive and there's fullness and all of these things in Christ. So that is why we do what we do. So this morning, we've been reminded of something so important. We've been reminded of the fact that there are real and potential threats to our spiritual progress. But the remedy or the shield 
um, against these is for us to continue to walk in Christ and fix our eyes on him. That is why we have small groups during the week. We get into small groups. The goal of small groups is not just to fill our minds, you know, with more data and more information about the Bible. Small groups are for us to discover the truths of Scripture and be reminded of Jesus and all that he's done for us. And as we are, we will have those moments when we are grateful and thankful for all that he's done. And we will have those moments when we're like, Jesus is enough. He is. And if everything and everyone was to leave me, by God's grace, I will be satisfied. Let's never get bored of Jesus. Let's continue to point others to Jesus. But as we point others to Jesus, let's not be like road signs. That's what road signs do. You know, they point people in a direction and they're not going anywhere, right? That's what road signs are doing. But let's be more than like, let's walk together as a community in pursuing Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for allowing us to um, see from your word um, the many or several of the threats to our spiritual progress. Um, these are real. These are all around us, but they're not all around. They're not outside of us. They're inside of us. We all have a tendency, Father, to be legalistic. Try and gain your love um, and your mercy and your grace through doing good works, Father. We all have a tendency to focus on experience and feeling um, and allow our feelings to dictate or decide for us whether um, you love us or not. Father, none of these things. You love us unconditionally and you love us. Um, because of what Jesus Christ has done and because of you um, cultivating in us um, a response to Jesus um, that says, Jesus, I'm trusting you and I'm surrendering the whole, my whole life to you. And so thank you for this reminder. Thank you for exalting Jesus Christ in our lives and in our gathering this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, every, every Sunday we remember Christ through our spiritual practices, we just did, um, but today and once a month we want to remember Christ in a unique way. Um, we want to celebrate his life, we want to proclaim his death, and we want to rejoice um, in his resurrection through communion, um, which is also known as the Lord's Supper. Today we look deep within ourselves and examine our attitudes and intentions. And although our attitudes and intentions are flawed, because as we reflect on our own life, we'll be remembered of how flawed and how messy or how sinful we are, even though our attitudes and intentions and our lives are flawed, as we celebrate Jesus' life and proclaim his death, and rejoice in his resurrection, we are reminded 
that as we commune with Christ in community, as we um, partake in this bread, which is the body of Christ broken for us, and as we um, um, drink this cup, we're going to do it different. We're going to grab a piece of gluten-free cracker, and we're going to dip it in. Um, and But as we do that, this blood, um, this cup, which has some juice in it, represents Jesus' blood, which was poured out for us on the cross. Right? And it's through that that we have forgiveness. As we celebrate communion, we are reminded that our sins are forgiven and we have been made alive together with Christ. And so communion is one of the many ways we celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and so if you're a believer here and you are here and you're just like, I'm just so bad, I'm just so flawed, um, know that you don't need to do anything in order to, to, for God to love you. God already loves you. He wants you to recognize and acknowledge your sins. He wants you to do that. But as you do, do not dwell um, in condemnation. Lift your eyes, lift your gaze to Jesus Christ and be reminded that through his life, death, and resurrection, you have life and you have forgiveness of sins and you have peace with God. And this is one of the many ways we remind ourselves and we celebrate all that Jesus has done. And so as the music starts, that's what we're going to do. We're going to do it family style. Um, each and every one of you, um, you're going to come and you're going to take a cracker and you're going to dip it in the blood. And what I want you to do is go back to your seat with it, right? And just pray and just thank God for Jesus Christ. And then you can celebrate and partake in communion after that. Does that make sense? Good. All right. Enjoy. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in me. 